Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Can we talk about how much you're getting paid? This year, in 22 states, workers are getting a raise. Some workers, anyway. That's because the minimum wage is going up. In California, it's 16 bucks an hour. Make that 20 if you work in the fast food industry. Even more if you're in healthcare. Illinois workers are now taking home $14 an hour. In Montana, it's a charmingly specific $10.30. That is only a 35-cent increase, by the way, but hey, it's something. I called up David Newmark to help me puzzle out what this change means. Think about it this way. We we haven't changed the federal minimum since 2009. David is an economist at UC Irvine. The minimum wage is kind of his thing. He's been studying it for 30 years. He says the first thing to know about all these adjustments to the American pay scale is that the shift here is, like a lot of things in our country, a compromise. With the federal minimum wage lingering at $7.25 an hour, states are getting involved. Cities and counties, too. We have evolved into a system since, since the last federal increases and since we've gone now 15 years since then of essentially regional minimum wages. 10 million workers are reportedly about to benefit from this local economic boost. But I got to say, when I heard that, it felt like whiplash. I still remember how controversial the idea of $15 an hour used to be. I want to talk about the minimum wage, gentlemen. Mr. Vice President, we are talking about This presidential debate was just three years back. At the time, candidate Biden was campaigning on the so-called fight for 15. Then President Trump was not having it. He said we have reaction. to help our small businesses by raising the minimum wage. That's not helping. I think it should be a state option. These days... I can't imagine a debate going down like this. Some Democrats seem ready to blow past the fight for 15 and tell businesses to pony up even more. This is Ask Governor Murphy, a co-production. Take the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy. Jersey's one of the states that hiked its minimum wage this year. And when Murphy showed up on a local call-in show to talk about it, he denied there was even room for disagreement about boosting pay. I think... The debate upon reflection, given what people get paid these days, is almost quaint, uh, frankly. And I, I wonder whether or not we shouldn't be taking this higher. That's something that I'd be very open to. Haven't spoken to the legislative leadership about it, uh, but I'm, I'm open-minded uh, to taking this uh, to another level at some point. After hemming and hawing a bit, the governor floated the idea of an $18 an hour minimum wage, maybe even 20 Do you feel like... The conversation about the minimum wage has fundamentally shifted in some way over the last couple of years? Well, I, I feel like in the last couple of years, it's it's kind of disappeared. But I think it's become it's become less of an issue in public debate, in large part because the labor market's been so hot 
and it's just not as big a deal for people anymore. It's not it's not as big a deal for voters. Today on the show, what the heck is happening with the minimum wage? And does boosting worker pay actually help the people we think it will? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I wonder if we can talk about how we got here with the minimum wage going up like this in at least like half the country. Maybe we should start with just how did the U.S. establish a minimum wage in the first place? Like, can you tell me that story? In the earliest 1900s, there were a handful of states that passed minimum wages. Then the federal government in the 1930s uh, passed a minimum wage for a narrow set of industries. And then slowly over time, two things happened. The level of the minimum wage rose, and it did early on and and, and later uh, through the 60s, rise relative to wages. So it had more and more bite over time. And in some sense, more importantly, it was, it was expanded greatly to cover almost all workers. There's, there's a few exceptions at this point, but not very many. And the minimum wage, was it always supposed to prevent poverty? Uh, that's a good question. I think, I mean, my awareness of, of people talking about minimum wages as a solution to poverty uh, goes more to the 1960s or 70s when people really started to talk about this and, and people still talk about that as a goal a lot. Earlier on, you know, the minimum wage was, I, mean, I think some people argue, was meant to prevent competition from blacks or from women. Hmm. You had black migration, of course, from the South to the North, entering manufacturing, which, you know, then and now are, you know, among the highest paying jobs. And if you had competition from folks that the, the people in power didn't like and that would push down wages, well, if you pass a minimum wage, that's less appealing to hire the folks who will work for less. But I would say since we started talking about poverty, the war on poverty and all these things, uh, the anti-poverty argument has come to the fore. I often quote uh, Ted Kennedy, who was perennially a sponsor of higher minimum wages, as saying, I think erroneously, uh, the minimum wage is one of the best, if not the best, anti-poverty policies we have. 
Hmm. How did raising the minimum wage become contentious? Like, my understanding is that the minimum wage, you know, it, it would be raised because costs would go up. But we haven't raised it federally since 2009. So when did that become a fight? Oh, it's it's always been a fight. And I would say there are probably two groups that are the principal folks opposed. One is, of course, businesses who have to pay higher minimum wage because why wouldn't they be opposed? Not all of them, but most or many. Uh, but economists also typically argued that the minimum wage distorts the labor market. And in particular, what it will do is price out the least productive workers. What does that mean? Tell me what that means in like simple terms. The only reason I, as a business owner, would hire a worker is because they will produce for me more than I have to pay them, right? The output they produce multiplied by the price I can sell it at, you know, in some simple way, has to be higher than the wage, or why would I hire them? I, no one's in business to lose money, because people are in business to make money. That's what they do. Uh, and when you raise the price of of a subset of workers, and it, you know, obviously it's those who, whose wages would be at the low end, typically because of low skill, but not the only reason, uh, you make those workers less attractive. And some of them may now be, be you know, sufficiently expensive and low productivity that employers don't want to hire them. Um, the, other, the other angle, which is not necessarily related to productivity, is groups that, that suffer more from discrimination will be more adversely affected by the minimum. I mean, what, is, what does discrimination mean? Well, that's a complicated question. But to the simple version to economists is, I view the productivity of, let's say, a black worker as lower than a white worker, even if they're, in a sense, physical productivity is the same. And then by the same token, if the government forces the wage up for them, I may be less likely to employ them. And you see some evidence of that in the data for minorities, that, that minority job loss when the minimum wage goes up is a little bigger than non-minority job loss. And I guess the other side of that is the argument that a rising tide boosts all ships. So if you raise the minimum wage, it's good for everyone across the board, right? Right. There has been an argument made. I don't really hear it made much anymore. Um, that somehow the minimum wage stimulates the economy and everyone does better. The only element of sort of potential truth in that argument is that the poor spend a higher share of their income than the rich, right? The poor don't save much. People with higher income save more. So it's like a sugar rush for the economy. <laughs> in a sense, it's a sugar rush for the economy. But that effect is small. Uh, there's, there's differences in how much we consume out of income aren't very large. And longer run, that's a bad thing because, of course, it's the savings that people do that ultimately finances investment, which ultimately makes workers more productive and is the reason we can now buy a lot more with an hour of work than we could 60 or 70 years ago. If you've been listening closely, you can probably tell that decades of studying the minimum wage has made David Newmark something of a minimum wage skeptic, meaning he is not convinced that boosting worker pay is going to fix poverty. For instance, some studies show raising the minimum wage can mean fewer workers get hired in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean minimum wages are a bad thing, right? Any government regulation you could name, I think, would cost somebody a job somewhere. If we get serious about climate change policy, uh, oil refinery workers are not going to be happy. Then they're going to be worse off. Hmm. Um, the policymaker's job is to weigh the trade-offs. There's something we're trying to accomplish like raising wages at the bottom, or maybe, we'll get to this in a minute, helping the poor. 
And we raise the minimum wage to do that. And if a lot of people are helped and a few are hurt, uh, maybe that's a worthwhile trade-off. And that's where I think we come to the second issue that economists have studied, which is, does the minimum wage help people at the bottom? And and the answer many people think is, well, it, it's got to, right? Uh, but empirically, it's not so clear. A lot of minimum wage workers or low wage workers are not the primary breadwinners in their family, and a lot of them are actually in quite high-income families. So think about the teenager in an upper-middle-class family who has an after-school job. There's no distributional reason we want to raise that family's income by raising the minimum wage. You've also pointed out that people who are poor, like about half of them don't work, so the minimum wage isn't going to reach them. Right. The other other reason, the the other main reason minimum wages don't help the poor much uh, if at all, is because you, if you take families, toss out the retirees, just look at those with working age adults, about half of them don't work at all. If you look back to the 40s or 50s, a very large share of that income that's, that's in a sense, um, mandated by the higher minimum wage goes to poor families, over half. As you come forward in time, you get to the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, it declines to well under 20%. Hmm. It's worth thinking about what it means to say that uh, of the increase in the wage bill from the minimum wage, less than 20% goes to poor families. That means that through the minimum wage, to get a dollar to a poor family, we have to effectively increase the wage bill employers pay by $5. That's a really inefficient way to get money to the poor. Hmm. You've done a little bit of this already, but I want to kind of come back to it. I'm mindful that what's happening now with 22 states boosting minimum wage is happening at this very particular economic moment. Like a lot of things are going on at once. A couple years back, we saw this tightening of the labor market. Low wage earners seemed to feel really empowered. They were leaving their jobs. They were demanding higher pay. And then there was this inflation. People started feeling like the economy was bad, quote unquote, even though economists would say that's not so. How do these things play into what's going on now with the minimum wage in these states? Well, I I think the labor market has gotten very hot. Uh, You know, we we have seen this repeatedly. We saw it in the late Clinton years. Again, we saw it in the mid-2010s. And of course, we're seeing it now. And that's the thing that lifts all boats, or maybe that doesn't lift all boats. Maybe that's just all boats rising. Um, you know, hmm. if you ask any labor economist, wherever they fall on the minimum wage debate, what's the best thing for low wage workers? I think they're going to say, and they sure as heck better say, a booming economy, right? The business cycle falls on low skilled workers more heavily than on high skilled workers, almost always, except some weird recessions. That's the context in which the minimum wage increases are happening. Uh, so in a sense, you know, I think uh, that's the sense in which they've become not irrelevant, but less relevant. Um, and one can't point to the booming economy as evidence that the minimum wages didn't hurt because the booming economy, of course, outweighs that. Hmm. To me, I look at rising minimum wages around the country and it seems a little bit to me like the least the government can do, by which I mean, when COVID was no longer a national emergency, we saw this clawback of all kinds of benefits that had been reducing poverty, things like the child tax credit and additional welfare resources and food benefits, like the government spigot got cut off. And raising the minimum wage is something the government can do where it's not really, it's not footing the bill for it. (laughs) Is that 
too cynical of me? No, I, I think that's exactly right. I think we we know inequality has gone up. Governments could do many things. They could give people checks. They could create policies, which we have, to create work incentives. You could have a child credit, which means maybe you get money if you don't work, but only if you have kids or some some version of that. But all of those are funded with taxes. And it's virtually impossible to create any new program that raises taxes. You all, If you follow debates in D.C. about new programs, you always get them saying, well, and we're going to cut this one to pay for it. But the minimum wage is, it's not a free lunch for the rest of us, very much not so. Someone pays for it. But it is, it's sort of a free lunch for legislators. And they can say they did something. I would So I would say I'm, I, I'll, I'll go one step further than you on the cynicism. I think you're right that it's a way to do something without having to essentially be responsible to taxpayers and voters. But also, I think we know, or we're pretty darn sure I am, and many others are, there are better policies that both encourage work and increase earnings at the bottom, but they have to be financed with taxes. And that's why the federal government, at least, has really shied away from them, except in an emergency. After the break. So what about these better policies? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So what is your fix here, David? Like, instead of boosting the minimum wage, what would you be doing? Well, we have a policy in place already that I would boost a lot more, and it's the earned income tax credit. And what it does effectively is it says if your family income is below a certain amount, and that amount depends on your kind of family structure, right? How many kids you have, you simply get a subsidy. Uh, with two kids from the federal government, if your income is below a certain level, and think of it as the kind of high teens or 20,000 or so, you get a 40% extra check from the federal government. Hmm. It's a huge subsidy. It's 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 like a minimum wage increase of, of, of 40% in a sense, but it has some huge advantages. First of all, it encourages people to work because your take-home pay is now higher. Now, you might say, doesn't the minimum wage do that as well? Well, yeah, but when the minimum wage goes up, employers have to pay more to get you. So they're less likely to hire you. That's why there's job loss, right? When the EITC goes up, more people enter the labor market. The wage employers have to pay falls a little bit, so they hire more people. But workers take home pay is higher because they, they, of course, get this big subsidy from the government. I hear what you're saying about a tax credit and why it's more efficient and why it's maybe more specific in terms of who it targets and who it helps. 
But it also seems complicated. Like, I know you're also a fan of this California tax credit, the California Competes tax credit, which incentivizes businesses to hire people. Like, basically, they they tell the government, we're going to hire this many people if you give us a tax credit. And then the government can decide, like, we're going to give you that tax credit or not based on your application. All these things, though, they add these layers of bureaucracy. And it's not something that you would, like, campaign on. <laughs> Like a tax credit that you have to fill out a form 3B and then you'll get a check in three months. Well, the EITC is not complicated. The California Competes Tax Credit is. Um, So policies can differ. So you're right. A tax credit that businesses apply for and then someone decides and if they hire people, they get lower taxes. But then the government monitors to make sure you actually hired people and on and on and on. Um, that's complicated. It might still work in that case. It does. The EITC is just a couple lines on your tax return. But you still got to fill out that tax return. <laughs> well, you're supposed to be filling out a tax return. I know, anyway. but it's paperwork. Very, uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's not like it, it, it's not as simple as I don't know as as just a minimum wage hike where I just go get a job and the money comes. No, that's true. That's true. But there are a lot of community organizations and others that help people fill out their tax returns. And uh, you know, look, that's the cost of a modern society. So I I agree. Um, it's, 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 it's a small cost to get the EITC, but I mean, I would turn it around and say, yeah, I agree. It is a little more complicated than minimum wage than the minimum wage, but in terms of getting income to low income families, uh, at least when they can work, uh, it's about as simple as it gets. Yeah. I get the sense talking to you that the coming years will be really interesting for an economist to see how these booming minimum wages are actually going to play out. Are you kind of excited <laughs> for the next few years? Uh, it's always fun to be an economist, um, just despite it being the dismal science. Um, <laughs> Spoken like an economist. You know, this is, this is where uh, e- economists sort of feel a little tension. Because if you say... What's the best thing we could do with minimum wages for you as an economist and a researcher who wants to write and publish papers and figure out how the world works? It's let's have a lot of crazy minimum wage increases, right? In different places. And especially in places where it's not because wages are going up, right? So it'll actually matter more. Um, But then if you said, what would be the smartest policy? I'd say, well, we should probably argue roughly where we want the minimum wage to be relative to a location's wage distribution, you know, kind of how high, how much bite do you want it to have? We should kind of have it roughly the same everywhere. So again, it'll be higher in California than in, in Alabama. And then we should probably index it to something, right? So that employers know what's happening. Like inflation. So it's kind of never going to sort of move around the price of low-skilled labor a lot relative to other workers. It's perfectly predictable to employers. So that that's the tension. Um, uh, if I was advising a policymaker, I would say the latter uh, but that would make it less fun to be at least a labor economist who studied minimum wages because there wouldn't be much more to do. <laughs> I mean, but as a scientist, are you like looking at all these states and thinking like, huh, I can't wait to see what happens in New Jersey or I can't wait to see what happens in South Dakota? Yes, de- definitely. Um, if I could study, let's say, fast food restaurants in California and other restaurants in California and one is affected by the minimum and what isn't. I'm pretty sure there's not much else going on that's driving demand for hamburgers at Burger King, but not at, at Five Guys. <laughs> uh, if I can compare what happens at the at the covered restaurants 
versus other restaurants in sort of the same price range that aren't covered by the law, then I can really isolate in a very compelling way the effect of the minimum wage. So even though it may be irrational, and I don't know why a guy who makes burgers at a fast food restaurant deserves a higher minimum wage than a guy who makes burgers at a bar, um, as a researcher, it's kind of cool. David Newmark, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. David Newmark is a professor of economics at the University of California, Irvine. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. That's our membership program. If you go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus, you can find out all about it and sign up right now. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I will catch you back here next time.